this, narrator advises that the listener digest the following as entertainment. The showrunners behind it are neither six-figure filmmakers nor professional critics. They are casually critical. Welcome to Casually Critical, the podcast show starring two pals who love to talk about storytelling. I'm your host, Daniel Carpenter. And I'm James Newton, your co-host. Today we're going to be discussing Lord of the Rings, directed by Peter Jackson. All of you know of this franchise. If you don't, you've been living under, I don't know what, Mordor. So the format of this episode is going to be a little different. Our first portion of discussion is just going to be us talking about the films and our thoughts on them. The second part, thank you to all of our fans who have submitted questions and comments about Lord of the Rings for us to talk about. That will be the second half, but in the middle of that, we'll still have our casual correspondence and a very special announcement. If it isn't made obvious already, there will be no restraint on spoilers discussed. We're assuming most, if not all of you, have seen the movie series or are at least familiar with the story structure. We do, of course, encourage you to see it before listening to those 1% of you that probably haven't. Put the spoiler sound bite in now. No, you can't have dessert before dinner. You'll spoil it. So Lord of the Rings is, I think, more influential not just in cinema, but really in the fantasy genre as a whole. It inspired the likes of George Lucas when he was working on Star Wars. It inspired modern fantasy as it is today in its presentation. A lot of uh, fantasy races like elves, dwarves, even orcs, which I believe was a relatively made-up species for the world of Lord of the Rings. Yeah, as far as I know, it didn't exist before Lord of the Rings. All of this has set a trend now in modern fantasy, Dungeons and Dragons, and countless other examples. So the books already have such a, a huge following, lots of readers, a lot of people that love to delve deeper into the world of J.R.R. Tolkien. While the books are groundbreaking, the movies are also amazing in their own right. They are adaptations that, while they do tweak some things from the books... Pretty much everyone has a consensus on them. Everyone loves these movies, which is interesting because adaptations, especially today, tend to be very controversial. Yeah. But before we delve into the adaptations, let's talk more about the relevancy of Lord of the Rings. Because in this day and age especially, one or two years ago feels like ten years ago. Things move by so fast, and we often get caught up in the minutiae of the now. And that being said, everyone still talks about Lord of the Rings today. And the Hobbit movies, even though they were a lot more recent, hardly anyone brings them up anymore in discussion. Yeah. So I guess I'll start with you, James. Why is it that you think Lord of the Rings is still relevant today? Yes, thank you. I've been raising my hand for 10 minutes. Um, (laughs) I think that Lord of the Rings is still relevant today because it is so faithful and so loving with the source material And the source material is so amazing and such a story that people are drawn to and have nostalgic feelings associated with and continue to get new things out of it 
that it, it just keeps going. It it never stops being an amazing story because it is such a rich story. Um, and that story, that rich story is so accurately depicted and made accessible to newer audiences because of the format. I don't think 75% of the people that watch the Lord of the Rings movies would want to sit down and read the Lord of the Rings books. I know some people that would want to, but don't have the time, or they are interested only because of the movies, but don't like to read, so they don't. That's how powerful this movie adaptation is, and frankly, I just haven't seen it in any other movie adaptation ever. However dense the books may be, how much information is in the books is drastically simplified and streamlined in the movies. And we'll touch on this a bit more later, but the movies also do a really good job at, even though they disregard some things in the books, they still keep a lot of the dialogue that is written. And that really shines through, which I really like. Yeah, it gives it that timeless feel, definitely. Um, yes. You don't have people quipping back and forth Avengers style in these Lord of the Rings movies. It's not a sucker punch comedy sort of style. It's, it's very right. poetic. It's very... I don't know. It's very fantasy. Um, fantasy yeah. is defined by these books, and it shows. And I will say, too, the Avengers movies, you know, with Infinity War, I love that movie. But I almost guarantee you, James, in 10 or 20 years, it's going to become dated really fast, simply because of all the modern quips, references to Squidward and all of that. Like, a lot of people are going to get lost really quickly. And instead of Stark becoming this really smart sassy quipper he's gonna become this old boomer out of date <laughs> yeah kind of sign of the times but lord of the rings doesn't have that with peter jackson and his very talented team they realized they really didn't need to do a whole lot of work to make lord of the rings more relevant they leaned on the story and all they did was tweak the story so that it would be appropriate and digestible for movie audiences. They never touched the story out of fear that it wouldn't connect with people. Right. And I'd say one good way that they streamline this, Daniel, um, in a way that doesn't threaten fan bases, is by reducing the amount of characters. Um, there mm. is a humongous cast in Lord of the Rings books. And instead of saying, oh, that character in their role, we'll just forget it and think of some other way for these people to solve this problem or have a different encounter... Instead, they've compressed mul like multiple people into certain characters. For example, in the first Lord of the Rings book, uh, there's a character that helps Frodo get to, um, heck, Rivendell um, on horseback. His name is Glorfindel. He does not exist. He's replaced. He's replaced by Arwen, which gives Arwen some more time to shine, honestly. Her romance with Aragorn, too, adds to the possibility of her showing up there. It's right. not out of the blue where it's like, who's this random elf chick? It's like, no, they're, they've had a history and it would make sense that she would want to help him. Yeah. So that's, that's one example. And it, it never, it never treads upon the book. It never says, yeah, what the book did was kind of dumb. Instead, we're going to do this. Instead, it says, here's some story beats that the book did really well. Let's try to condense that in a way that's more understandable. So we're going to talk more about all this and other things. But before we continue, James, I'm curious the trilogy, what would you rate it overall? And then if you could tell me, give me your list of your favorite movie all the way to your least favorite movie in the trilogy. Okay. I would rate the trilogy overall as a five out of five. Wow. It's kind of obvious. I love it. It's very inspiring to me. 
And I honestly didn't read the books until after I saw the movies. And honestly, my rating just was stronger because of my reading of the books. It was just reinforced. But going down the line, I would say my favorite. Ha ha ha. This is so hard. It's like picking your favorite child. Yeah. Ordinarily, I rank The Return of the King and The Fellowship of the Ring as the two better ones. And then The Two Towers just being a half step below. But I think I'm going to have to say Return of the King is my favorite, followed mm. by uh, Fellowship, and then um, coming in at the rear, still one of the greatest movies ever, uh, is The Two Towers. Mm. How about you? So I've been torn between giving this trilogy a 4.5 or a 5. I'm going to give it a 5. Um, some may see me as a wimpy following peer pressure established by James. Um, <laughs> And that might be partially it. There have been a few things in these movies which have become a little dated for me. Not reference-wise, just some of the effects, uh, some of the acting choices. There's a few nitpicks which come out of the woodwork for me after I've seen a movie so many times. But that's going to be natural, I think, of any movie. Yeah. But really, the reason I'm going to stick with a 5 out of 5 is because the legacy this movie has left. I really wish that this trilogy defined every single trilogy that came after it, just like the books did to the fantasy genre. It does, because now every time there's an adaptation, we compare it to the pinpoint accuracy of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It's true. It's just it's sad true. that none of them live up to the standards. It's, it is, Lord of the Rings did show that there is a way for you to faithfully adapt a book into a movie. I would argue no movie can ever truly be greater or as great as the books that they're adapted from just because books do some things better than movies can. However, what Lord of the Rings, what the movies lack in adapting from the book, they make up for in the strengths that movies have over books. Yeah. So I think in some ways the movies are not quite as good as the books. They're, they come close, but they don't quite live up to it. But then in mm. some other ways, I would say the movies are better than the books. Yeah, I mean, you get to hear that cave troll and see people get stabbed by it instead of seeing yeah. a description. Yeah, so, exactly. So, have you been stalling, or do you actually have a yeah, um, rating, <laughs> a hierarchy? Because I know it's one of the hardest things a man can do is rank the Lord of the Rings movies. Okay, when you think about it, Fellowship of the Ring does a perfect <laughs> job at... Answering the question, how the heck do you introduce people into this world that is, A, so vast, B, even with condensing the characters, how the heck do you get everyone to recognize each character as an individual? And C, how do you bring us into this world full of deep lore and make it digestible without overwhelming us with information? The Two Towers. A lot of people pass in the Two Towers. I'm one of them. It's my least favorite of the three, but it's... I'm glad we can agree on that. But let's talk about Helm's Deep, Daniel. Well, well, here's the thing. The Two Towers should be the most boring, but it isn't. Frodo and Sam encounter Faramir. They encounter Gollum, and the interactions they have with him are really interesting. And Andy Serkis, of course, great performing. And then, Return <laughs> of the King. How do you end this world all of these characters, how do you wrap it all up in a way that is concise, in a way that is satisfying? And this was the big one for me, James. How do you end in a way that just feels right? 
it feels so dramatic. They do such a good job. I've been rambling on for far too yeah, long. You're still stalling, Dan. Throw I it at would me. say Fellowship of the Ring first, Return of the King second, Two Towers third. And when I say that they're differently ranked, I'm going to say in terms of millimeters, like from yeah, far oh, away, definitely. they're the exact same rank. That applies to my rankings as well. So all that just to say, we've thrown a lot at you guys so far. Let's move on to our casual correspondence. <laughs> We have uh, one question today, and then we have an announcement, and then we also have a question for uh, you, our fans, as well. So excited. Um, so here is the question we got from our good friend, Milan. Milan. Um, thanks, Milan. What is a movie you love and most people dislike, and vice versa? A movie that you enjoy that other people don't, and then a movie that other people enjoy that you don't. Another phenomenal question that will take some time to answer. Again, I'll probably think of something else after we're done, and I'll say, dang it. <laughs> For me, I have two movies, actually, that I would say I love that most people dislike. One of them you probably all see coming. The other one never mentioned before on this podcast. I would say Glass, uh, and I think that is something James and I, I think, share. Yeah. Um, Glass is by no means a perfect movie. I'll be the first to say that. There are flaws in it. I also love Split, but I think Glass is just such a bigger stakes movie and a lot yeah it got a lot less spotlight than split did but for me personally i think 10 cloverfield lane is a movie that i love that a lot of people dislike or at least weren't a big fan of i won't say much about the movie james and i are actually planning on reviewing it relatively soon it's a great movie for quarantine it's um, a very quarantined movie Let's we'll we'll talk later on about uh, the vice versa the movies we dislike most people love. James, what are some movies you loved that most people disliked? A movie that has been criminally rated. It was rated six point four uh, by critics out of ten, uh, which I think is just far too low considering the amazing things that it accomplished. This movie is Hoodwinked. Ah, uh. the animated film. I believe it came out in two thousand seven, two thousand six. Visually atrocious, I think in some ways. Uh, but this is what we're, we're we're talking a shoestring budget here. This is a five million dollar budget movie because of its excellent cast, because of its fun writing, uh, and because of its its excellent take on fantasy, uh, the fantasy genre, the fairy tale genre more specifically. I really like Hoodwinked. I think a snob would say that it's a poorly crafted movie. I think I would agree with the snob, but I would also say that I really enjoy it. So yeah, that's gonna be my pick. I I think that's a that's a pretty good one that I think other people do like as well, but it's just not popular among your typical film critic. Okay, and I'll have you start this time, James, because I had no prep time for the first part. Yeah, a movie that I dislike that most love. All right, this one's a little obscure. This is an animated movie. I figure I figure I should speak my own language because I'm not as informed of a critic when it comes to live action. Uh, and yet here I am making this podcast. Anyway, uh, that's why that's why Daniel's here. He makes up for my weaknesses. We balance each other out. We really do. The Breadwinner, a movie about a young girl in the Middle East who disguises herself as a boy. There's some really unique visual storytelling going on. Done by Cartoon Saloon, well known for The Secret of Kells, The Song of the Sea. Uh, it's an Irish studio, does lots of great 2D animation. I thought it was kind of boring guys uh i don't know what else to say it was it was boring and these unique 
unique storytelling things. Basically, the older sister tells stories to keep a younger sibling occupied and distracted during the fighting and the crazy things going on in their family and in the war. And it just wasn't that. It didn't blow my mind. It wasn't visually appealing to me. So I don't know how many people really know of that movie, but I mean, whenever I get uh, anthrax in the mail, um, <laughs> I'll have a few ideas of who it'll be. What about you? I especially have a sadistic attraction to disliking movies everyone else likes, especially when the quality oh, isn't it. terrible. It's just average, um, especially more recent animated movies. Last year alone, there was Toy Story 4, which I don't think was as great as everyone liked. There was Frozen 2, which I don't think was as great as everyone liked. 2017, there was The Greatest Showman. Um, but I'm going to keep it simple for you guys. Um, I'm going to provide three uh, things that I dislike that everyone else likes. And I'm going to preserve these three things because they are things that constantly get mentioned and resurface in our culture that I think should just die. I don't like them at all. Their existence uh -oh. is a blight on my life. And whatever legacy I leave behind or lack thereof, they will impede this. Um, <laughs> I'll provide you with a genre. I'll provide you with a TV series. And I'll provide you with a movie. Genre, live action, Disney adaptations. I'll keep it short. You are taking a thing that has already come out in theaters, a gift, if you will, a little present. James, look, here's a little story. You want it? Open oh, it up. Thanks. Oh, thanks. Wow. Oh, what? look how well so done nice. everything is. Oh, the animation, the humor. Whoa. Oh, Robin wow. Williams. He's so cool. Now, no, no, no. Whoa, whoa, whoa. James, you've grown up. We need to make what? this gift more relevant. But you still okay. like the gift, right? Yeah, it's yeah, my favorite. It's, yeah, okay. Well, I'm going I'm to take your gift back. Give me, give me. Here we go. Okay, I'm going to take it. I'm going to put it back. I'm going to okay. change the packaging, the wrapping. Okay, here you go, James. Open it up. Wait. What happened? Why is it so not colorful James, and boring? You're just ignorant. You're Where's a, Robin Williams? You're ignorant of the modern day issues we're dealing with. We need to be more woke. I sprinkled some woke on it. It makes it a lot more relevant for your age. Uh, it just smells like Axe body spray to me. Okay, anyway. So that's the genre I utterly wish was annihilated off the face of the earth. It is a abhorrence not just to cinema itself, but to storytelling and anyone that would consider it an art. Uh, it is not art. It is a product. That is all I'll say about that. It does not deserve more of our precious podcast time. But what about Pete's Dragon? TV show. This will cause a lot of people to come after me or at least hire bounty hunters to look for my head and then give it to Daniel, them. Daniel, are you sure planner. you want to do this? Friends, the TV show, not a fan, not a fan of the characters, not a fan of the world building. The way I would describe it is if you were to take People magazine and give it a TV show, that's Friends. It's juicy <laughs> gossip. It's sexy sex. It's everything wrong with humanity packaged into a gluttonous cash cow that will never stop being milked uh it needs to stop guys we're it's it's 2020 uh we need to stop and for <laughs> those of you listening in the future the time to stop was a long time ago you should cancel it and for movie illumination entertainment any movie by them it's not as bad as the disney live action no it is it's just, it's it's like, it's like I give you a gift, you open it, and it's a bunch of cockroaches that infect your house and just spawn more. That's the minions. I can't shake them. I can't 
everywhere I look, they're there. And then when I look away and blink, there's more. There's double than I last saw them. It needs to stop. Minions 2, The Rise of Gru is coming out. Ah. That's the fourth Despicable Me movie we've had in 10 years. Four movies in 10 years. (sighs) Daniel, can we at least acknowledge that the first movie isn't bad? It's good. It's just that it it was encouraged by fans and by critics. And because of it, they produced more and too much. The only reason I hate Despicable Me, the first movie, is because of what it represents. Oh, man. If you were to sever (laughs) the Minion Abomination, if you were to sever the Illumination Cancer, and if you were to just give me the movie, if I was in a bubble box and that was my world and I didn't know anything outside of it, and you're like, Daniel, watch this movie, I would enjoy it. And a side note, if you guys want us to review one of them, just let us know. (laughs) I would be happy (laughs) to disclose my thoughts. But then again, I'm a live action boy. What do I know of animation? That's why I have James. He does all the thinking for me. Speaking of which. All right. So we have an announcement for you, loyal fans. We are doing a contest. Woo, yeah, confetti. Some of you guys really love our podcast and want to know how to support us. So we have created a way for you to do that. Hop on Facebook and or Instagram and make a post promoting Casually Critical. Tag people in that post who you think would enjoy the show. And the more people that you tag, the more tickets will be put under your name in the running towards a grand prize. And the prize is being a guest during our casual correspondence portion in one of our upcoming episodes. Make sure you tag us uh, whenever you do make these posts so that we see what you're doing uh, and are able to put your tickets in the running. I will do a drawing. We're really excited for you to be a part of the show. Um, And we're looking forward to seeing your posts, um, sharing this around. And as always, thank you so much for your support. We're a small podcast. There's not a lot of people that are listening to us right now. Word of mouth is the most powerful thing you guys have. And that's not something James and I can do alone. We're asking you guys. You guys that have listened so far have been immensely helpful to us. In fact, this very episode wouldn't exist if it wasn't for you guys as well as a few other choices we've made about our podcast. You guys have done a great job of shaping our podcast, and we appreciate that. And so even if you're not very interested in being part of Casual Correspondence, tagging us in a post of yours and getting the word out is super helpful. It means a lot to us. And just so we're clear, the competition starts now. Our next question that we'll be asking you guys, our fans, uh, we want to know, what you guys think about adaptations. If you could have any book or book series be adapted into a high quality movie or movie series like Lord of the Rings was, what would it be? Keep your eyes on Instagram. Uh, We will love to hear from you. Want to join the conversation? Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Casually Critical Podcast to get the inside scoop on future episodes. Feel free to message us on either platform to join in the casual correspondence or provide feedback on the show. Now it's time to dive into our spoiler review. So a while back, we sent out on Instagram questions asking you guys, well, if we did a Lord of the Rings episode like we're doing now, what should we talk about? And you guys brought in some responses. So we're going to have kind of a facilitated discussion, so to speak. So Sky from Kentucky said, all of it. Thank you, Sky. 
We're doing that now. <laughs> Milan. From- <laughs> uh, so, James, earlier on, we were talking about the legacy of Lord of the Rings. And that is something we're going to bring up again in more detail a little later on. But more specifically, Milan from California wants to know our thoughts on its legacy from a technical standpoint. He says, uh, we should talk about the practical effects and CG elements that went into this. Now, I will say, um, if you're looking for more resources and you're a devout fan of not just Lord of the Rings, but also a appreciator for effects in general, the Corridor Crew on YouTube has a whole visual effects artist react. They did two episodes dedicated to Lord of the Rings, and the stuff on it is incredible. You should totally check that out. But, James, let's talk effects. Do they still hold up today? And... What makes them still a force to be reckoned with culturally? I think Lord of the Rings, what it doesn't have in up-to-date technology, when we're speaking in terms of 2020, it makes up for in really, really hardworking effects artists. Yeah. If you don't want something to look dated, you got to put a ton of elbow grease into it. There is one scene, which is probably commented on, in this Corridor Crew video you mentioned, where Smeagol is splashing through the river chasing a fish. Oh my gosh, yes. In that scene, an entire human being bigger than Smeagol had to be masked out, and the motion-captured fully CG Smeagol had to be put in. People marvel at the water effects in this scene. There are no water effects. That's real water. They masked out the whole person and masked in another entirely different person. They work so stinking hard on these films, guys. And it shows because the CG in some of these things hold up so well. And it's not because of the tech they had. They did have state-of-the-art tech in 2003. But it's not because the tech stands up to what we have today. It's because they put so much work into it and so much thought into it. Going on what you said about elbow grease... The scene when the Eye of Sauron closes up and then sends out a shockwave destroying oh, that's the so tower. Weird. It's one shot, the tower being destroyed, but that's not a model. They used a lot of models for this. That isn't a model. That's completely CG because it kind of bends to the shockwave curvature. So how do you go about this? Well, you need a high-res 3D model of the tower. Great. They didn't have that. So over Christmas break, one guy painstakingly spent his whole break working on making a high-res 3D model of this tower for it to be blown up in this one shot. (sighs) And here's the thing. He didn't have to. No one told him to. This was out of the blue. He was like, you know what? I'm gonna do it. Just gonna... Why not? There's a love in this trilogy that we'll talk about more, but... I think that's the secret sauce in the effects. Um, It pays off. There was a lot of prep work beforehand. All three movies were filmed over the course of around 200 some days, I think. Yeah. And it it shows. You can't just say, "Eh, well, we'll we'll see how it goes. Like, no, you have to be deliberate. We'll do it in post. (laughs) So Kendall from California brings up what I think is actually a very interesting uh, point, as well as you did, James. You thought it was interesting, too. Our least favorite parts and what can be improved about them. It's very hard to think of least favorite parts, but I can tell you right now, 
I have a very distinct part of the, about these movies that I do not enjoy. And that is the character of Frodo mm. and the acting therein. Um, there are some instances that really, really get under my skin. There are some parts that really, really bore the heck out of me. The way that that can be improved on, I frankly do not know. If there was some sort of cue, and there are some cues, and they're very subtle and great, like he's, you know, um, turning the ring around in his fingers um, under his shirt, or, um, you know, flashes of the Eye of Sauron, or sometimes there's a ringing sound. All of those things help saying, oh, okay, this isn't just Frodo being annoying. The ring is messing with him. Okay, that's what you're talking about, where he goes into a trance. And he just stops talking. His eyes roll in the back of his head. He starts fiddling with the ring. And you're like, uh, Frodo? Sometimes, but also just like whenever he throws tantrums and he's dramatic. Oh, yeah. Like uh, in Return of the King, whenever Go home, Smeagol, Sam. Yeah. He frames Sam. Yeah. Sam's Makes me upset. so mad. Yeah. Is that because I there's something wrong with me? And I am, the movie is succeeding in making me frustrated with Frodo? Or is it really, is there really a misstep in execution? Because I'm not heartbroken. I am just mad. I'm not heartbroken over the loss of Sam. I'm just mad at Frodo. Go ahead. I would say maybe not a change in acting, but perhaps a change in direction. Um, yeah. From what okay. I remember, I remember bits and pieces, guys, of the appendices to the movies, which are extensive. Uh, there are all these behind the scenes things, which I love. I love how extensive the behind the scenes work was on the trilogy. But I believe Christopher Lee, who plays Saruman, may he rest in peace. Great oh, actor. Love don't the villains. Me. He's gone. Um, he talked about uh, some of the earlier scenes he did with Sir Ian McKellen, who plays Gandalf. And Peter Jackson would constantly do take after take after take. And he's not used to having this many takes because he's a classically trained actor. He's very good at what he does. And he wasn't being told he was doing something wrong. They just kept doing his scenes over and over. And he finally leaned over to Ian McKellen and was like, is something wrong? Like, why are we continuing to roll and do these takes? And he just simply said, oh, no, don't worry. Peter Jackson's just very particular about what he wants. Like, he'll have you say something over and over again until he gets exactly what he wants. And I think to kind of trace back to your problem with Frodo, and now that you're getting the specifics, I understand, too. Yeah, Frodo can. There are some times where I'm like, okay, we get the idea. You know, there's yeah. nothing that's really emphasized about his addiction or the problems or forces of darkness. I would have simply gone back to Peter Jackson and said, you know what, Pete? Love your idea for the trilogy. Let's re-envision re Frodo. Because I feel a lot of the acting in this is kind of blown out of proportion a little. And I'm not saying yeah. that's a bad thing. Because this is a very severe thing that he's dealing yeah. with everything is larger than life and i think it would have been an interesting contrast very subtle contrast if frodo's acting and the vision for his character was more tapered down where it was more like instead of large like no it was more like kind of subtle fear more uncomfortable squirming and so whenever yeah. he starts acting out of character we can jack that up even more we can show these dresses like oh my gosh you know yeah i think that that's a very good point daniel because i think i just started to get tone deaf whenever mm. frodo starts overreacting i'm like oh here he goes again whereas if he had sort of if his progression had been a little bit more more like a guy jumping off the deep end and less like a guy already in the deep end just screaming for help. 
I think a great reference is actually Andy Serkis playing Smeagol in the opening scene of Return of the King. That's one of my favorite scenes in the whole trilogy. It's when he murders that other hobbit he's with. Oh, shoot. And takes yeah. the ring. And then the montage that follows of his descent into darkness, the music and sound design still haunts me. I loved it to death. I loved that how part it gave me nightmares as a child. Just seeing his life being torn apart by the ring. That's a great example, I think, of the crippling addiction that the ring can bring on someone. Yeah. So seeing Frodo struggle with that or shadows of that can be an oh shoot moment. Even maybe some direct references to that scene can emphasize to us, oh shoot, Frodo was toying around with perhaps going into and becoming, becoming another golem, you know? Yeah. And there are a couple things I want to say since we're sort of wrapping that up. And I think you brought up some good points there. Um, Elijah Wood is an outstanding actor. Yeah. He did amazing in those movies. And also Peter Jackson is an amazing director. He had a lot of crap to juggle. Okay. He had a lot of stuff to deal with. Yeah. So whenever we, whenever Kendall, you tear us apart and tell us to talk about our (laughs) least favorite part of our favorite movies. um, I am saying it all out of love. Yes. Uh, and appreciation because there are a few I struggle to find issues. I think that might be the only one that was right on the surface of my mind. So, yeah. um, Daniel, I hope this has given you some time to think about what you were thinking for some of your least favorite parts that need to be improved on. I did not enjoy the character of Galadriel that much. And I think a very awkward scene, Frodo and Galadriel have their one-on-one chat. Okay. Kate Blanchett has a great voice. I love her doing the opening narration for Fellowship. Um, and I think it captures perfectly the dramatic tone Peter Jackson was going for. But especially the moment for me when she turns into her witch, like, not a leader, but a queen. Beautiful and terrifying. And I'm like, okay, we get it. We get it. We get it. Oh my gosh, we get it. Oh, will love me. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, despair. we get it. You, you want to be hot, but you don't want to be consumed by the darkness. I understand. Like, pardon <sighs> me, but it seems like Galadriel in that brief moment turns into like a drama queen where she's like, oh my gosh, my Insta could get so many likes if I just took this one ring. You know? <laughs> All shall love me and despair. So... Instead of Galadriel saying, instead of a dark lord, you'd have a queen. And then we go turbo. And she's like, <laughs> go turbo. Um, she goes metal. She looks into the pool. Whenever Frodo talks about like, I could give it to you. He offers it. She looks into the pool and there are just brief flashes of her mm. as this evil queen. Why not just don't show us her face. Show us her hand in the negative mode. You know, wearing the one ring. Show us her flicking her wrist. And then people go flying, just like what Sauron did in the opening battle. Yeah, just show her, like, conquesting the world, Sauron style. Yeah. Anyway, we should we, probably jump onto really our We really have thing. to continue. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so Jacob from Oregon asks, what makes a great adaptation? And kind of wants to know, okay, yeah, so you're saying Lord of the Rings is a great adaptation, but what specifically makes it great? And I love your question, Jacob. Still don't know who you are, but I love your question. That was a joke, Jacob. Please forgive me. We love you. I think the answer is love. Like, as corny as that sounds, the love that the team put into this. Let me, okay. So I said I'd talk about a lot of things in the previous section in this section. Here I go. 
from what I've reread of Fellowship of the Ring, I've realized something. For all the parts that they omit or make drastically simplify in the adaptation process of making this into a movie, for all the parts like Tom Bombadil that get cut, the team, the writers that made this happen, whenever they need to bring in some new dialogue, they just bring in dialogue that's been said from the parts they had to cut or brevity. So, for example, there's the lengthy process where Gandalf tells Frodo the whole history of the ring, starting with the seal door. This is brilliant because instead it's put at the beginning of the movie where we can just learn and have it shown to us instead of having Gandalf regurgitate everything we just saw. It's also a great way to dramatically bring us into the world of Middle-earth. It's fantastic. Give us the best history lesson I think I've ever gotten. But then there's a line that is said to Frodo that I believe is spoken by Gandalf earlier in the book, talking about how we need to do now what the time is given to us. I completely botched that <laughs> quote. True fans will know what I'm talking about. But he says it earlier in the book, and then later they just put it in Minds of Moria, which I think is a better time to put it in, just because it's a time where we can all relax and chill with the fellowship in this really dark, creepy place. But Frodo and Gandalf <laughs> have their last moment together, one-on-one. -on -one. Their last moment together, and Gandalf chooses to inject Frodo with those pearls of wisdom. So, the love. There is so much respect for the dialogue in that, like I just talked about. There's so much respect for the story. They say, hey, let's not drastically change things. Let's not try to be woke. Let's not try to be self-aware like the Disney movies try to do. Let's just try to tell Tolkien's story. Let's not try to tell our story and code it over with Lord of the Rings material. Let's just tell Tolkien's story. Let's not wink, wink, nudge, nudge at hardcore fans or people that read the Cimmerillion. Let's not name drop people that aren't immediately relevant. Let's just tell Tolkien's story. And it works. By golly, it works. And I think that is the core element, the secret sauce that gets us the beloved trilogy because before it was beloved by us, it was beloved by the people making it in the first place. Thank you for attending Daniel's TED Talk. Screaming in the Dark. You can catch it now on Spotify. <laughs> this is Screaming in the Dark Soundbite 3. Screaming in the Dark. Speaking of community, Daniel, um, another Sweet. person brought this point to our attention trevor from indiana wanted to dis wanted us to discuss the fact that vigo mortensen broke his foot kicking a helmet when filming for the two towers yeah um and to me uh that just gives me a good idea of you know what this what the crew the casting crew of this movie are all about um vigo mortensen is a very dedicated method actor but he was never more committed to a role than he was to aragorn the cast and crew, as far as I know, still stay in touch. These people got to know each other well, and some of that chemistry does show up in the acting and the cast. Um, they are very dedicated. They are not two people that get together for 10 days in a green screen room and run around and yell at things that they can't see. These are <laughs> real people that are really friends walking around in real destinations, mm. and it shows. So there's one more question here, and I think it's very relevant and important. Ooh, okay. um, it's from Connor from Illinois. Hi, Connor. Connor. Good to hear from you. The question is, uh, I want to know whether or not Merry and Pippin are actually orcs or not. 
And it's funny that you bring that up, Connor, because I've actually been doing a lot well, of Well, that's all about- the time we've got for today, folks. I'm Daniel, and this is James, and you've been listening to our podcast, Casually Critical. Please like, rate, comment wherever you're listening to on podcasts, and stay tuned for that contest of ours coming up. Have a great one. Yeah.